Support. Support. Support for this podcast is brought to you by the The Kellogg Innovation Entrepreneurship Initiative. Think bravely. Think differently. Think collaboratively. But I never really wanted anyone's sympathy. I never looked for sympathy, and not with anything in my life. I've I've always said it's made me stronger. It's made me tougher. It's developed me as a human being. It's made me more empathetic. It's made me uh, a much stronger willed person than I, than I was. Those kind of things really, really deepen your soul. Hello, you're listening to My Startup Journey, a show that highlights the business and individual stories of innovators, educators, and Kellogg students. We speak with Sherry Roberts of The Longest Stay. My name is Naruki Harai, the host of My Startup Journey. This time of year is graduation season. Commencement speeches focus on platitudes of working hard, making the right decision, or following your intuition. But inevitably, whichever road you take, you will be challenged. And to put it bluntly, you will get punched in the mouth without a clear direction of where right is. Regardless of who you are or where you went to school, you will need to take skillful and decisive actions to survive. Today, our guest is Sherry Roberts, the CEO of The Longest Day, a high-end online furniture retail store. From an outsider's perspective, she is opinionated, unapologetic, and exhaustingly relentless. But upon reflection, her personality was shaped through her instinctual reaction to her painful and debilitating experiences. In this episode, Sherry talks about overcoming personal challenges and how they shaped her life. This is Sherry's story. I, I was quite independent, um, had my own mind set up on whatever I wanted to do, and I loved animals, actually, and I loved uh, the fact my mother used to make my clothes, and she also used to you know, make uh, bedspreads or things for the home that I liked and crocheted and all those kind of things. And I think that that kind of fundamentally resonated in me as a child to see uh, lots of homemade things being made all the time. And uh, it put a stamp of kind of quality in my upbringing that I think I still have to this date. So, um, but I, I lived a very, I lived in Connecticut. I grew up in a, I'd say a middle-class family. I learned to work at a very young age. I actually got my first corporate job when I was 15 years old. Um, I just wanted to work and pay my own way. And I remember paying my car insurance when I was 16 and kind of, kind of making my money and, and making my way and learning the corporate life at such a young age. So that was quite a good experience. Well, it, well, if you consider that my first job, it would be working for a Blue Cross Blue Shield insurance company. I went up to the back of the door, uh, behind my house, there was the big uh, corporation and I knocked on the door and said I was 16 instead of 15 and ended up with a job doing data entry. So typing in all the medical claim forms that people were submitting for insurance claims well before you really had computers. So you were kind of implementing uh, claim forms into a system that they had. I might have band practice. I might be in a concert. I was a majorette, so I twirled a baton. So it's not like I didn't have extracurricular activities. And then I, I went at four to work and I finished at nine. And I, I think it was five days a week, I can't really remember, but I do know I had a paycheck and I was had to clock in, I had to clock out. And I managed homework and school and everything else on top of that. 
I mean, I was a workaholic. Really? So at a, at a young age, I, I, I threw myself into work. And even when I was 19 and I went to university, I turned my dorm room into a travel agency and I took everyone on spring break. So I always had a, a, an entrepreneurial spirit, even if I was employed, to say, I want to make my own way, I want to make my own money, and, and uh, no one's going to stop me, and I'm just going to be highly independent. And that was something, I don't know if I was born with it, or uh, I felt I needed to be that way, but whatever it was, I ended up being exactly that way. I just went to a local state school in uh, Connecticut, and I was quite lucky, actually, in some ways, I even went to university because I was really not, a, oh, it wasn't that I wasn't a great student, but I battled a few learning disabilities growing up, and I think it really held me back. And when I ended up in university, it was more like I was lucky I got in. It was that kind of kind of feeling, you know? And, uh, and so I think that was another thing that made me work so hard was because, you know, academically, I always found it quite a challenge to study or sit down or concentrate on anything. And, but I found work so easy, you know? And so it was quite, it, it, when I discovered much later in my life that I actually did have a learning disability called ADD, um, I kind of empowered me and said, well, you actually are really smart. You actually could do very well academically if you could just concentrate. And I kind of figured out a little cure for, for that. And that was recording every lecture I ever had. And when I recorded it, I could go home and I could listen to it for 10 minutes at a time. And I could really get the lecture kind of embedded in my head. I have a big drive and whether it's work or whatever it is that happens to me or wherever I, whenever I want something, there is nothing that really stops me. Mm-hmm. And I mean nothing. So, and, and I don't know where I was born or how I got that trait in me, but, it, mm-hmm. and I think as a young kid and as a child, I showed a lot of independence very, very young. I would go walking in my backyard and go hiking for hours by myself and come back, you know, when I was young. And um, always taking a few stuffed toys along the way because I love animals, so. Uh, but I, yeah, I mean, that was just the way I was. I'm a, fr- I'm a free spirit, highly independent uh, woman. For her early life, Sherry was a go-getter, pursuing various careers and personal outlets. But after graduating college, Sherry was struck with an unknown illness. Ironically enough, this energetic young woman was drained of her energy and bedridden. Well, I was in my parents' bedroom. I actually got diagnosed with an illness called ME which was quite serious. Some people refer to it as chronic fatigue syndrome, and I was battling something quite serious. People underestimate it because of the name. They immediately think fatigue, oh, I'm a bit tired all the time. That is why they changed the disease name to ME, which is what it's referred to in the UK, and I think in the US it is now that as well. And I won't tell you the long name that comes with it because it's impossible to pronounce. Um, but you lose your short-term memory, you have concentration issues, you have depression, you have insomnia, you have anxiety, and then physically you have fevers every day, you have sore throats, you have kind of a lymph node pain throughout your arms and your glands and your legs, you feel an exhaustion that no matter how much sleep you have doesn't make any difference. I compare it to mononucleosis or glandular fever uh, times 10, really, because it's permanent and you live with it for years and years and years and years of your life. I think the challenge I had was that nobody believed in the disease. When I was young, I was told when I first got, uh, first got diagnosed, oh, it's in your head, you're a woman, you're lazy, you don't want to go to work. I actually had doctors say those exact words to me. And you, I said, you must be talking to the least lazy woman in the world because that is not who I am. 
And I had to fight a lot of stereotypes. You know, people didn't understand what it was. Friends would say, oh, I, fe- I think I have that. I'm fatigued. Not having my mental strength or my physical strength or memory or loads of things thinking, mm, this is pretty serious. And I ended up going to see a homeopath who kind of rebooted me over a period of nine months, but I still was nowhere near healthy. But I remember seeing my parents' bedroom and, and looking at this phone book saying, you know, uh, you need to find a job. You just can't be like this. This is ridiculous. So I ended up calling a, a cruise line called Holland America Cruise Line in the phone book. And they bought me a plane ticket, flew me to Alaska, and I ended up being a tour director in the summer. So it meant, you know, three days a week I worked, two days I was off, three days I worked. And I did this from May to September in Alaska. And so I could kind of manage my illness because I wasn't in a mentally too toxic job, but I was in a very physically um, difficult job because you got up at four and you worked until 8 p.m. and it was tough um, on the on a bus most of the time so but in the end you know it did me the world of good to be in the nature and after that uh, I was given some advice go to San Francisco and find yourself a cure because there's yoga and there's acupuncture there's all these new things going on there and this was in 1994 so I ended up buying one-way ticket uh, living in a youth hostel I remember charging a, a clothes on a credit card and finding a beautiful building that I loved because um, I loved architecture and I snuck into this building, stuck into an elevator, met someone riding the elevator who looked like he was quite successful. He had a Mont Blanc and a Rolex and I thought, hmm, he does well. And he ended up getting me an interview and four interviews later, I ended up getting hired by AT&T in San Francisco. And that's how I ended up starting my real career, which I say really started in telecommunications. It didn't start in anything else. It started then. And uh, and then I would go to yoga, which happened to be across the street, and I would go for acupuncture, and I learned to cure myself of a very difficult disease. And my first year was pretty debilitating. My second year was still pretty bad. My third year, when I finally started getting real help in California, I kind of could live with it, and I could manage it, but I'd have relapses. So every three weeks, I'd be sick for five days, and it would come back in two months, and I'd be sick for another week. And I, I battled it for a good 10, 15 years of my life. Um, but despite having that and, you know, having my ADD challenge, it didn't seem to really stop whatever I did, you know, didn't matter. Yeah. And if it weren't for that drive, I would never have gotten better. I mean, I know people with the illness that still don't work nine years later, but I just battled it and beat it and lived with it and managed it and cured myself of it just my sure will of that there will be I will find a way and I and I believe I prayed you know I used to pray to God and say you know show me the way to get better because when you when you go through that kind of level of suffering you do turn to something that's bigger than you and you can say I don't believe in God but at the end of the day when you're in that kind of place you want to believe in a God and then what happens is you start to see evidence that actually there is a God helping you And all of a sudden, before you know it, I'm being thrown into a yoga class I would have never even walked into. And the yoga is transforming my lymph nodes and my stress so my mind has time to rest. So I'm recouping somehow from it. I'm giving my body a break from constantly, constantly being run down and burnt out. Because, you know, what what gives you an illness like ME is basically burnout. And and you are susceptible to viruses that you have somehow inher- inherited through your life. And all of a sudden, you become burnt out, and then the viruses all become active at one time. And you can't really suppress them unless your immune system becomes super boosted. 
So that's why a lot of people with mononucleosis end up with ME later because they don't rest from the mononucleosis and six months later they get the ME and that's exactly what happened to me. So, but it's, uh, it's just my belief that I would, I would come out of it and I would find a way and I just did. I did and when I met this Chinese acupuncturist and he said, don't you worry, we're gonna work on you. And I'll tell you, after six treatments, I felt so much better. I said, this is amazing. But, you know, I had to manage the illness for many, many years. I mean, without a doubt. I mean, I had relapses two, three months, sometimes one week, three weeks. I lived with fevers most, most of my 20s. I would say more than 50% of my 20s, I was sick. Definitely. And, and I went to work. But I never really wanted anyone's sympathy. I never looked for sympathy. And not with anything in my life. I've, ne- I've always said, it's made me stronger. It's made me tougher. It's developed me as a human being. It's made me more empathetic. It's made me uh, a much stronger um, willed person than I, than I was. And actually, you know, those kind of things really, really deepen your soul. And in some ways, I, I think I'm quite blessed I had it because I, I don't think I would be the same person today if I didn't. Mm-hmm. I definitely wouldn't mm-hmm. have the depth to me. And let me tell you, I wouldn't have the fight in me to keep fighting on the business that I've had to fight for how many years if I didn't have practice with my own health. Mm-hmm. Right. So when you're fighting for your health and all of a sudden you have to fight for your business because it's a startup and you are fighting when you're in a startup, you, you have to have that drive, that persistence, that consistency to want to win. And like I said, I had a big, big practice run when I got ill at 21. And when we come back, Sherry discusses channeling the lessons from her personal struggles into her startup. You're listening to my startup journey. This is My Favorite Class, where graduating Kellogg students share their favorite MBA courses. My name is Matt Hartford. I'm graduating June 2018, and my favorite class in the entrepreneurial program was Launching and Leading Startups, taught by Carter Cast. Uh, covered everything soup to nuts in starting and running your own company. My name is Jay Parikh. Uh, my favorite class at Kellogg was Fin Decisions. Um, I took it last spring, uh, and it was taught by Benjamin Iverson. Annette Gola, Selling Yourself and Your Ideas, Suzanne Mushin. Hi, my name is Claire Savonia, and I actually had two favorite classes looking back here on my time at Kellogg. The first one was Global Initiatives and Management, Social Impact, with Professor Tasha Seitz, where we went to Africa, Rwanda, and Kenya specifically. And then my second favorite class was Entrepreneurial Selling with Professor Craig Wartman, and that was just like a great um, opportunity to get out in the field here in Chicago. Hello, this is John Blanc. My favorite course was New Ventures Discovery with Professor David Schoenthal. Hi, my name is Edwin Vargas, graduating June 2018. My favorite class was Launching and Leading Startups, taught by Carter Cast. Uh, this class was amazing because it taught you all the different steps from how to uh, set up a company and lead it through all the different stages of growth uh, in order to be successful. I'm Kathleen McGurk. My favorite class at Kellogg has been Negotiation Fundamentals by Professor Noor Katili. I'm John Lee, and my favorite class was Digital Tools for Entrepreneurship, taught by Sean Johnson. He starts off by telling you five reasons why you should not take his class. It goes through about 200 slides of class, but extremely practical if you have your own startup like I do, and it allowed me to eventually move into a marketing role. Earlier, Sherry shared her personal story with ME. Now she speaks about her past corporate life, her Kellogg MBA experience, and her decision to pursue a startup and spent many years in AT&T having a very successful career and then 
moving to Germany following that and ended up working for AT&T sister company, which was really exciting, called Manus Men at the time. And I was told you, you sold the internet, now build the internet. So I built the first internet access product for the German market, which was quite good in 1996. And I learned German and I spent five years in Germany pretty much. And then I, after that, I ended up working for a company called Bertelsmann Media Group, which was a huge German media company. And the, the chairman actually hired me, uh, Christoph Mohn, and I went to work for his team in London. And I moved. And I moved back to London and worked, worked there. And at that point, I said that's when I wanted to get further education. I decided to get an MBA because somebody said to me, how do we know you're smart? And this guy actually went to Harvard. And I said, well, smart people recognize smart people. But something inside me, he, he ended up hiring me, but something inside me said, there will always be somebody out there that will never really figure you out. You should go and get better education and you should get a bit of a stamp of approval to people that actually you really can do whatever it is you want to do. So I remember applying to the graduate program of Kellogg and um, getting accepted and being really happy about that. and working incredibly hard because I did the executive program. So I worked full time in London and then I commuted weekends to either the German campus or the Evanston campus, depending on what the module was. And coming back, being on the board of directors, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, uh, running a business and then Thursday night being on an airplane and in classes Friday, Saturday and Sunday. And remember that's, that's an intense program for anybody, let alone somebody that has my challenges, right? So. So I did that for almost two years, so that was quite, quite intense. Um, and then when I was done with that, I worked for another company called Symbian. I took some time off. I worked in mobile tech for five years, and that was quite, quite an interesting time, teaching the world about open OS and smartphones and getting people to use a smartphone, especially getting operators to want to adopt an operating system. And that was my last corporate job in tech till I started the business I have today, which was completely, you know, 180 degree difference. So when I met my husband, my belated husband, he married me, come to Rome, be an entrepreneur. You've always been an entrepreneur. You've just been an intrapreneur in companies and you need a chance to really do whatever you want to do. So when I got to Rome, I wanted to go back to my travel business that I had as a teenager when I was in university. And I also wanted to, um, I don't know, kind of connect to the hospitality world. And I thought in Rome, there's really not much I can do in the entrepreneurial side apart from, you know, I don't know, Prada, <laughs> going to fashion, which I didn't think I could do. And I said, actually, what I'll do is launch a boutique hotel in the center of Rome. And I love architecture. I'll put all my beautiful things inside it. And I know beautiful things because my mother used to make all my clothes. I recognize quality. And at that point, I will then, um, you know, have my own little boutique hotel. And there's no boutique hotels in Rome. This was in 2008. So I'll be the first. So that was the original idea, just to have a simple boutique hotel in Rome. I ended up going to hotel school in Switzerland called Ecole Hotelier de Lausanne. And I remember calling up the director and saying, you know, I'm a girl from the tech world, want to build a hotel. Can you help me? And he said, come see him. And I went to visit him and we had an interview and he said, hmm, you got more tenacity than anything else, but I think you're going to make something really big and you're going to make something far bigger than just a hotel. So he said, here's some students, go out and start some market research. So the students he gave me, which were five students, turned into 30 students over two years. 
and I would commute from Rome, Geneva, Geneva, Lausanne, Lausanne, Morge, go up to Epinage, go to Chalet, go Bled. I would do the whole thing every week. I mean, the commute was incredible. And I was just married, so, you know, my poor husband never saw me. So I lived in Switzerland most of the time. And I learned that people wanted to buy what they saw in luxury hotels. And I said, it's really interesting, really interesting. But that's not really... I don't know, I'm not going to go into a hotel and try to figure out what ashtray they bought where or what light they bought where because most likely it's made in China and it's not even made for retail and I'm just not going to do that. But I know people want to buy what they see in hotels. It's a really good idea there. There's a problem there that needs to be solved. I just don't know how to solve it. Then I looked into it further and I found out that people want to buy what they see in home decoration magazines, but they can't easily get it. And at the back of the home decoration magazine, you'd have to call a retailer or an interior designer. And half the time, the product in the magazine wasn't even available. So I said, well, that's even a bigger problem. That, that's one I'm much more interested to solve right now. So I said, why don't I create a website that looks like shopping in a magazine, lots of editorial, create my own photo shoots, put my own furniture in the shoots, uh, let people click and buy from the pages, even use models then, you know, so we would blend a bit of fashion with home and get the first Italian brands online with me because now at that point I was speaking Italian, right? So I was married to an Italian and I was living in Rome. So I could go up to the furniture shows in Italy and I could start speaking Italian to the Italian companies. And after a couple of years, I could persuade them to come onto the internet with me. And it did take two years. I left EHL in 2010 and it wasn't until 2013 that I got the first Italian brands online. I created a beta website. I got investors behind me. Um, and I remember doing my first photo shoot with an interior designer called Stefan Tolgard and, and, and being completely amazed that, that you know, I was creating this online business. And I was going to call it the longest stay. So it's all about you furnish a home you never want to leave. It becomes your longest stay. And then eventually I would put my furniture into hotels. So not only would I sell it around the world to high net worth individuals, I would put it into hotels and then I would make the hotels my showrooms. And I call them the longest day hotels or powered by the longest day. And I would have this retail concept, which was creating hotels into showrooms. And I would have the online business behind it. And I remember someone saying, have you heard of net to porte And I said, well, no, because I live in Italy. I shop here. I said, check it out. I remember checking it out thinking, wow, she's done something very similar, but in fashion. So I knew I was on the right track. It kind of validated it. Fresh off of closing an angel investment and moving her family to London, life throws Sherry another cruel and chaotic challenge. Sherry's supportive husband unexpectedly passes away. This is Sherry describing her late husband. He was a southern Italian man who was highly well educated and uh, had a really good career. And I think he was the least sexist, chauvinistic person you'd ever meet in your life. For him to, you know, to kind of marry me and say, be whatever you want to be, go and, you know, go and be happy um, instead of go and have three kids for me. You know, it, it wasn't about that. It was go and be because I'm marrying you for you. I'm not marrying you to change you, you know. So he wanted me to be free. He wanted he he didn't have a jealous bone in his body. And I tell you, if I went to Switzerland for work or I had to go to London for work. You know, I would be in the kitchen on a Sunday. I'd make all this food for him. He'd have all the food for the week. I'd say, I'll see you on Friday. I've got to go. He'd be like, that's fine. See you soon, mm -hmm. you know? 
and off yeah. I would go. So I had this kind of role where, yes, I was kind of a wife and, and I was a traditional wife in the sense that, you know, I kind of liked to do the things of looking after my partner. Um, but he looked after me too. But I think, you know, he never stopped me. He never, he never held me back and said, you can't, he just said, you're going to make it. You're going to do it. You're going to be, I'm so proud of you. And he just, he was my, my big champion. So, you know, finding out, you know, I was on the way to the office when I found out he died and we were moving on the Monday and he died on the Thursday was really quite a shock. And I didn't expect it. There was no warning signs. And uh, I think I think I've had quite quite a spiritual, I would say, experience since he's died. And I call him my chief angel officer, which one day I'm going to write a book and call it the chief angel officer. And I'm going to talk about how my husband guided me after he died through my business and all the signs that I had, all the help I had, all the miracles I witnessed. And it will be really inspirational for people because, you know, you, you, you will understand, one, there's life after death because I've actually really have enough evidence to tell the world there really is. And secondly, the stories I will tell about how I built this business, you know, with that kind of grief and then that kind of support at the same time. Um, and I, I felt the support from him way after he died. You know, I still feel it. You know, yesterday he would have turned 50 and I, I, I felt huge amount of support around him. After her husband's death, Sherry is left to take care of her family, move to a new country, and keep her startup afloat. She must tap into her faith, her competitive instincts, and her business acumen. I learned five industries. I learned retail, I learned logistics, I learned e-commerce, I learned uh, furniture, I learned Italian, I learned editorial. I mean, I, I learned six different six different subject matters to build the business it wasn't just but the best thing is that i had the tech background so i knew how to get a good developer to code a page i knew to choose magento as a platform i knew the the, the tech side which actually was probably one of the most important sides of the company but i had to learn you know what kind of tone of voice i had to create my own content i had to deal with all the italian suppliers i had to learn logistics how to ship expensive furniture and all over the world. Uh, I had to work with, with shareholders. I never raised money before. I was an investment banker. I had to learn how to raise money. I had to understand valuation. I had to deal with legal contracts. I had uh, to hire an accountant. I, all of that I had to do by myself. I didn't have a team. Mm -hmm. And when I raised my, my seed angel investment, which took, believe me, a long time, and I went through an awful lot of hurdles getting seed investment. It was not easy. I learned a lot of things out there about what kind of investors, how to pitch, how to get the best deals, what to do, you know, and I, I've, I'm still raising money. I've been raising money on and off for five years. I mean, that's just the way it is when you have a high growth company that needs a lot of capital to become a consumer brand. I'm an American living in London. There's an advantage to that in the sense that I'm very direct and I'm very clear. The downside is that uh, this type of investment community is not the same mentality as other investment communities in other countries, such as the USA. It's much more conservative. It's much more risk adverse. Um, so you have it harder to raise money here, I think, than anywhere. But if you actually do raise the money in London, you are at the top of the top of your game because it, it, it's just so much harder here. And uh, I, th I think my lessons have been, you know, uh, persistence, 
I mean, what I mean, I talk to a thousand investors, I talk to a thousand investors, not a hundred, not 50, a thousand, whether I've pitched, whether I've used brokers, whether I've done it myself. Um, and, and you just keep going. And, and the thing about my concept was we were so early in the market with selling luxury furniture online that many people didn't really buy into what I was doing. It took quite a long time. And I think that, that that's the thing I struggled with, was trying to stay afloat while the market was opening up for me and raising money and raising money and getting loans and, and meeting people. And and my, my also biggest issue was I didn't have any personal capital really because during all this time my husband died and when you have a death like that, you go through a probate court and it takes years and years sometimes to sort out your finances between your spouse and their families. And especially in Italy, it's a very complicated system. It's not like a lot of other countries. And uh, so I, I built it really with no money. I mean, I built it with credit cards and with friends help and, uh, and investors, which I have 14 shareholders today. I'm about to take a few more. I have a drive to be highly independent in my life, right? So it's just something I want to be. I, I want to be successful and I want to have my own financial independence and I want to make my way in the world. And so that requires hard work. And I mm-hmm. never relied on my parents. I never relied on men or anything like that in my life. I've always fought my own battles. I've also you know, uh, climbed my own way through life. I mean, in as you know, I've lived all over the world and traveled in over 50-something countries, So, and I've done a lot of that alone. And it just, it's just my fiercely independent side, and it, it, it's just something that I'm, I'm quite proud that I have. So actually, funny enough, when I did end up uh, graduating from Northwestern, I graduated with honors, and I graduated and gave the graduation speech. Um, so I kind of was one of these, oh, is she really going to go to university to actually getting out of an MBA, a very, very good MBA program and graduating pretty much top of my class and also having to compete with people that went to undergrad, such as Yale and other universities. So I had a lot of catching up to do to them. But uh, once you discovered, once I discovered I had that problem, it, it academia was, was much easier for me. And, you know, I think I'm at the the turning point of huge success. But it's been something I've started since 2008. It's 2018. It's 10 years of relentlessness, hard work, and never giving up, and traveling and fighting and pushing forward despite whatever's thrown at you. Whether you're sick, whether your husband suddenly dies, whether you have a learning disability, whether you're a female, whether you don't speak the language, it doesn't really matter. You know, you just keep going. And... And that's why I know the longest day is going to be a global brand. Because at the end of the day, I'm going to make it a global brand. And and that determination is the reason I will succeed. And it's the reason why many startups do not succeed. Not because they don't have a good idea. Because they either can't figure out how to get money into the company and they run out. Or they give up. Once again, a special thanks to Sherry for sharing her personal story. If you want to find out more, go to thelongestday.com or on Instagram at thelongestday. Congratulations to all of the Kellogg students graduating this weekend. I wish nothing but the best of luck to your future. One final note, this is our last podcast of the quarter. We will bring brand new episodes in early July. And until next time, this is Naruki Harai for My Startup Journey.